You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Lots of texts rolling in. Keep them coming. 969-60-650-650. Always a great conversation with Tim and always one that goes over the allotted time. We try to account for it, Jamie. Like every single week I say to Greg, okay, let's get Tim on early this segment. And every week <laughs> Greg does that. And what do I do? I just keep going and going and going because I find that conversation with Timmy to be compelling. We go over. Yeah, he's great. We got to make time. We, some, something similar happens to us quite frequently with uh, Donovan Bennett as well. They're just uh, they're easy guys to talk to. What can we say? They really are. And we're getting some reaction to our conversation, which included, hey, which team's under the most pressure in Western Canada? You saw Ken Holland a couple of days ago go come out and say, it's time to win now. Okay. Connor McDavid, we played the comment for you last hour. He comes out and says, hey, time is now. We're not young guys anymore. They've given us the right pieces. We as players need to take it upon themselves. Tim and some of our other listeners have interpreted that as, okay, is that potentially McDavid putting the pressure on for the first time? I feel like that's a season away. I really do. I feel like it's going to take another significant disappointment for us to have a tangible conversation about whether Connor McDavid would actually consider his future in Edmonton, and maybe he never will. I'm just not there yet, Jamie. Yeah, maybe you and I are being naive, Scotty, but it just does feel like something that would be really unlike anything we've seen in hockey, or at least anything we've seen in hockey for a very long time. For Connor McDavid, the best player in the world, best player in the NHL, in his prime, under contract still for so many more years, right? Including this upcoming season, he's still under contract for five more seasons. It would just feel unprecedented for him to come out and request a trade. And again, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe... That's what he's saying at the media tour. When he says the time is now, he means the time is now, dot, 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 or else I'm going to have to do something about it. It's possible, and that because it hasn't happened before, I'm kind of sleeping on the possibility of it happening now, but it just feels so extreme. I'm not quite ready to believe we're at that point. Unsigned Texter says, out of all the NHL Pacific Division teams, I believe the Oilers have the most to lose if they don't win. GMs can be replaced, but if McDavid decides he wants out to play for a winner, it would be devastating for the Oilers franchise. I agree with that. Like, the most nuclear option is in Edmonton. I just don't think they're close to that button in the McDavid camp. Yeah, but if you do, and that's a, it's a fair point, because the worst possible outcome of any of these teams that's on the table, or, or you know, even possible, is Connor McDavid asking for a trade. That's worse than anything that can happen to Calgary. That's worse than anything that can happen to Vancouver. So if you think that is a legitimate possibility based on a disappointing year, then yes, obviously the stakes are going to be highest in Edmonton. I'm kind of in, I'll believe it when I see it mode though with it, right? Like it's, there's been so much speculation about it and I get why people want to see it, why people are curious about it to a certain extent, but I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, the thing that's kind of as bad if it happened, and I don't think it's going to on the record, it's not going to happen is if Pedersen and Hughes refused to sign and is dragged into the season and the Canucks got off to some awful start and the players said, well, there's just not enough money and uh, you got to pony up. Like, that would be just as bad for Vancouver yep. if there was a, a horrible negotiation that took place. I just don't see it coming. And we get a text every single day. We get people saying, why aren't these guys signed? The same reason Brady Kachuk isn't signed, the same reason Rasmus Dahlin isn't signed, same reason Kirill Kaprizov isn't signed, because we're not at that ultimate pressure point yet. And ultimately yep. what it comes down to for those players is, okay, how badly do you feel you need to be in camp relative to holding out for that last dollar or what you believe is 
a fair deal or a max deal based on what you want right now. And it really is. We are finally getting into the time where there are legit deadlines, right? Where the player has to be willing to miss the start of training camp, right? I mean, we're only, I think we're 11 days away from the first Canucks preseason game, right? So are Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes willing to not have been signed by then, right? Or at least, you know, because of quarantine and COVID protocols, maybe they could sign but not be in that game. We're getting to the dates that actually matter and that actually have a sense of stakes about them. We have a texter who says McDavid's future will be with a big market U.S. team, Rangers, Flyers, L.A., probably the Rangers for marketing. They've got players for trading and money. That's what's going to happen. Maybe eventually. Maybe eventually. I just really don't feel like we're anywhere close to that yet. We have some reaction from Calgary coming in. Whether Tre Living's being honest or not, this texter says, sorry, gentlemen, paint it white, black, red. It's still excuses coming out of management in Calgary. And that's in reference to Brad Tre Living yesterday saying, look, you can try to make change, but if the changes you're trying to make aren't viable ones because Players, for whatever reason, aren't going to come to your market, which would, which he was saying without saying yesterday. It tells me that they kicked tires on players who had some element of control about whether they could come to Calgary or not. Well, then what are we supposed to do? We're going to run it back with this team, and we're adding guys that Daryl Sutter likes. It seemed to be an admission of frustration more than anything else. Yeah, and it does kind of lead to the question, though, okay, you basically acknowledged this roster is not good enough to get to where Calgary wants to go last year with your comments, right? And Daryl Sutter did something very similar, as you've noted many times, Scotty, right, with his comments about the best centers in the North Division. You've basically come out and said, this roster, as it currently stands, not good enough to meet our expectations, not good enough to challenge for a Stanley Cup. So if that's true, and it's also true that, you know, basically based on circumstances outside of your control, you can't make any dramatic additions to the roster, well, then why aren't we doing something drastic like a rebuild? Why aren't we blowing it up? Like, if you've been painted into a corner with this roster and it's just not possible, there weren't any trades out there, players didn't want to come, why is the answer, run it back? Why isn't the answer, all right, well, I guess kind of go back to square one. And, you know, maybe the answer is Bradbury Living, because of his job security, doesn't feel like he's in a position to be able to do that. But it is a difficult spot to be in, right? Because you've already basically come out and said, you know, no, you know what, this group, they're not going to get it done. We need to change things. If you can't change things, well, what's left? Run it back isn't really a satisfactory answer. Well, they can't go to strip it down, do this over again. They can't because of the move that was made in the middle of last season. They brought in a coach who's not here for the next five to seven years. And Daryl Sutter made it very clear when he was hired, I think we can win here. I'm not taking jobs where we have to completely tear down, build back up, and, and then get over. That's not who I am. That's not the kind of coach I am. So that is completely off kilter with the philosophy they've had. Yes, I believe they wanted to change members of the nucleus. I think they tried to get a number one center. I think they're probably actively still trying. If I listen to everything that's come out of Calgary during the season last year and everything that's been said in the off season, it hasn't happened yet. It is just a tough message to swallow. And you're absolutely right about, you know, Daryl Sutter didn't sign up for a rebuild, right? And they're not going to rebuild. They're not going to undertake a rebuild, you wouldn't think, with Daryl Sutter behind the bench. I understand that. It's just all of those circumstances together – 
it makes it a really tough message to swallow for Calgary fans, right? Like, we need to change the team. We weren't able to. We can't do a rebuild because of the coach. So here you are again. We're running it back with a group that we've admitted we don't think can truly be contenders. Someone texting in, many fans have walked away from the Flames here. It's the offseason. Hockey hasn't started yet. If that happens during the year, if there's apathy, I'll buy it then. I'm not living in Calgary right now. Maybe a bunch of your friends have said, I'm out on this. They got off to a decent start. I think it'll be a little bit different. That's just the way it works with fandom. Mike in Victoria has said repeatedly all morning long, Benning has no pressure. He's not going anywhere. Canucks will be in the playoffs, so he isn't going anywhere. Well, if that's the outcome, you're absolutely right. Yes. Ian in Coquitlam says, pump the brakes, boys. What do you want McDavid to say? Ah, we're hoping for a good year, and we'll see what happens. Of course he wants to win. So do the other 600-plus NHL players. Ian, I agree with you. That's been my point the entire time. I don't think that is a shot across the bow from Connor McDavid. Yeah, but as Tim said, you know, Tim McAuliffe, who we had on last segment, you know, there's a way to say – there's a way to, you know – say that you want to win without being even as as confrontational as he was right hey i really like the additions we made and i'm excited i think we've got a good chance to take a step forward this year i can't wait to get going right and that still communicates that you want to win but it doesn't sound like an ultimatum now i don't think this is a true ultimatum in the sense of if the time isn't now but i'm trying to be out of here i don't think it's that but it is, you know, just slightly more to the point, slightly more direct than he had to be. If he had gone the completely boring, banal, platitude route of, yeah, hey, can't wait for another season, nobody would have blinked an eye. But he didn't do that. And I think it's fair to at least ask the question of what it might mean. I disagree with you. I think in this country, if the biggest superstar in the game says that, there would be some, while it would be completely unfair, Jamie, that would say, does he want to win bad enough right now? Is he not putting enough pressure as the leader of this hockey club to go get it right now? Why is he talking so vanilla? Why isn't he being more direct? There are people who would criticize that. That's the position he's in with where his status of the game is. You're right. Why isn't he putting an ultimatum on the Oilers? You're right. That's a fair point. That's a very fair point. People People would have had questions about that as well. I mean, I guess, look, and there's a there's kind of a bigger conversation happening in the background as well about just the nature of pressure in Canadian markets. And you're right. That's a great example where you got to say something. You're on this media tour, but pretty much whatever you say, people are going to read into it. People are going to pick it apart. People are going to try to interpret it in different ways. It feels like the Oilers, if we're talking about this side of the country, they are Maple Leafs light as far as the pressure. Hey, we don't really care what you do during the regular season. You Sure as hell better be in the playoffs. Talk to us once the postseason begins, and then we can have a real conversation. Uh, Tireman Shane texts in, Connor McDavid might not be saying that he wants out, but he should be. When he looks back on his career in five years, he's going to wish he made some noise and got out of Edmonton. And I, look, as much as I don't think he's setting the ultimatum right now, I also don't think that he's going to tolerate five more seasons of mediocrity in Edmonton, right? Five more seasons without them ever actually becoming a Stanley Cup contender. doesn't mean, you know, he's going to win a cup there or anything like that. But I do think, you know, in the two, three-year window, if there's just no forward progress, then the conversation about trying to get it down gets really real. Alex Ovechkin didn't ask out. Worked out eventually for him. Yep. 
worked out eventually for him. Keep this conversation going, 960-960 or 650-650. We prefaced the entire discussion, even though we focused on the teams in Western Canada, too. Every Canadian market has a lot of pressure. We all know that. That's just where we live, and that's just what these fan bases do. The media does it as well. We're a part of it. We speak to the fans. We know what the pressures are, internal, external. We talk to you about them. So, yeah, there's pressure in Ottawa. There's pressure in Winnipeg. And, yes, despite going to the Stanley Cup Finals, Tim McAuliffe alluded to last hour, there is pressure in Montreal. And, Jamie, it's pressure they brought on themselves, quite frankly. There would have been a honeymoon period after last year's run had some of the things that happened this offseason not gone down. And front and center is the drafting of Logan Mayu. We all know that. You're right, and a honeymoon is a great way to put it, right? Because they were kind of an underdog darling in the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? And people really got on board with, you know, what Mark Bergevin was doing and his personality, and they got on board with some of the young players on the Montreal Canadiens, and they threw a lot of that away at the end of night one of the draft. They did, and it was drafting a player who'd said, I want out, and there'd been a lot talked about because he was convicted of a crime overseas in Sweden with what he did. In, in, you know, in taking photos and circulating them, and, and he got convicted of that in Sweden of a young woman that he was in a sexual act with. So Montreal, again, addressed the Logan Mayu situation again today. And they're going to have to do it repeatedly with this organization. It's going to take a lot of time. Jamie, you can tear trust away with one action, but it takes a long time to build trust. We all know that. We've all been in, in whether we're talking about relationship with your fan base or we're talking about a personal relationship you have in your life. Today, it was the vice president of community engagement, Genevieve Paquette, and former NHL defenseman Rob Ramage, who also happens to be the director of player development for the Habs. They fielded questions today from reporters on a Zoom call this morning because Montreal put out the press release that it has a new initiative in-house to try to improve, improve things within the organization. And you're right that this is something, this is going to be an underlying storyline, not just for this season, but I mean, really, I think for as long as Logan Mayu is a part of the organization. And we all know, you know, he's not going to be attending training camp. That's part of what they're trying to do to address things and address these concerns. But they are, it is going to be something that they have to repeatedly address and they're going to have to talk about on a somewhat regular basis as long as, as, as I said, as long as he's a member of that organization, I think. And I listened to a bunch of the press conference this morning. It was streamed on Twitter. Both of the people involved, Miss Paquette, who is the VP of Community Engagement, as I mentioned, and Rob Ramage, they were lockstep in the direction with the player in question, Logan Mayu. They both had this message. Look, we can't just tell you something and this is going to go away. He has to do the work here. Like, he has to do the work to make himself a better person before he represents Montreal in any way, shape, or or form, you know, Mayu and the Canadians, they were grilled immediately after this selection, Jamie, about, okay, well, what are you doing? What kind of work? And one of the answers that came back at the time is, hey, maybe he can go speak to kids about what he did, why it was wrong. And a lot of people cracked back on that and said, no, 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 hold on. We need to see a lot more contrition here. We need to see that he's taken this more seriously. There are allegations from the victim that he hasn't even properly apologized. We can't have this guy talking to to young people we can't have talking talking to anybody quite frankly about what happens until he actually understands the gravity of this and Genevieve Paquette today said that she said no 
we're not going to have him speak to anybody. We're not going to have him go tell people about what he's been through because he's got to do the work first. And that's been a theme and I think a lot of the reaction to it, right? And, you know, the the pick was, I think, poorly done. It, it was the wrong decision by Montreal. But then the way they responded to it and responded to criticisms initially was also very poorly done, as you said, with that suggestion. And it just didn't seem like they had any real idea of, okay, what's our plan here? What are we going to do to actually try to make things right, to actually try to be responsible in this situation? It didn't feel like they had thought it through at all at the time. Rob Ramage was there. Paquette admitted she was surprised by the selection, by the way. She was asked about it, and she says, I was surprised. Yes, she was asked if she was consulted. She said, no, I wasn't consulted about this, and it's not my job, basically, she said, without saying to to make hockey selections. My job is when something like this happens, okay, how do we improve the situation? How do we improve the person? Rob Ramage was up there speaking as someone who oversees player development. That's part of it, but also as somebody who committed a very serious crime and was later afforded a second chance. He literally said that today. This is a man who spent time in prison. He was behind the wheel, and he was not sober when his former teammate Keith Magnuson was killed, and Rob Ramage was convicted. Rob Ramage spent time in prison, so he was speaking on that front as well as somebody who got a second chance and he believes has made much more of his second opportunity. And I think a common theme in this has been there are very few people saying that Logan Mayu never deserves a second chance. It's just a question of the context that it comes in and the steps that have to happen before that second chance is is afforded, right? Like, that's the bigger conversation here. And, you know, it sounds like with this latest press conference or this latest announcement, maybe the Canadians are starting to take that work seriously. We still don't know really if, if the player is, but... Hopefully the organization is, and hopefully they're able to kind of communicate the seriousness of it all to the player. The Arizona Coyotes have just made an announcement. They have hired someone within their front office, Jamie. John Ferguson Jr. joins the organization. He is an assistant general manager. Now many hockey fans will remember he was one time the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's been with the Bruins for the past seven years he was their director of player personnel, and he was the GM of the Providence Bruins in the AHL. Bill Armstrong augmenting his front office down in the desert. Yeah, joining as the assistant general manager. He's also going to be the GM of their AHL team, the Tucson Roadrunners. John Ferguson, yeah, not a name I was expecting to think about, of course. Well-remembered for his stint as the Maple Leafs GM. I was not expecting to have him come up today. On the surface, does this give you further conviction that they're not going anywhere from that market we've talked about the turmoil that surrounded that organization for a bunch of different reasons not the least of which involves not having a lease after this year hey where are they going to play but you're talking about somebody here who just left an extremely stable organization in boston and went to one that is the opposite of it on the nhl spectrum yeah, I don't know if it does give me any more confidence, right? Because I'm sure he got assurances from ownership and from the general manager that they're committed to staying there. But we've also seen reporting about, you know, what assurances from that ownership group mean. They don't always check out, right? So this is not an organization and a franchise that always acts with a tremendous amount of logic behind it. I don't see this as any sort of evidence that they're sticking around long term. Not a lot of people believe it until they see it either. I tend to think they're not leaving that market. When when there are big things, the commissioner steps in and he puts the screws to the market. He hasn't done that yet. 
Yep. I mentioned that at the time when that lease story came out. And until Gary Bettman does that, I think they're stuck in the desert, whether they should be or not. And I know hockey fans have an opinion on that. We'll continue to talk puck here next. NHL rookie camps are opening over the next couple of days. Haley Salvian of The Athletic next up on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. People are wondering what they can look for at rookie camp with their respective teams over the course of the next week. And then there's training camp to dig into. And then, of course, Jamie, we get to the NHL season. Just before we get to Haley Salvian, I want to play this clip that was on the airwaves in Vancouver earlier today on Sportsnet 650. Greg Wyshynski of ESPN was talking about the NHL product and what we're going to see. This was a really big topic of conversation in the playoffs last year. One particular infraction that got a lot of attention, and it sounds like it is going to again over the course of this season. Have a listen to Greg Wyshynski. Because every single year we see a new emphasis from the officials on something that they want to change or um, decrease as far as player behavior. And this year it's going to be cross-checking. And um, it's going to be cross-checking in lots of different places on the ice. And the other thing, too, that I think we're going to see is I think that we're going to see the Department of Player Safety start to step up and issue suspensions for particular kinds of cross-checks, in particular um, ones that are delivered that send a player into the boards in, in a violent manner and ones that are delivered on a part of a player's body where they could be more injurious than they would be, say, if they struck a lot of padding. I think most people who watch the playoffs had this conversation about cross-checking and what is it, when is it enforced, why isn't it enforced in a more consistent, consistent um, form here, Jamie. And I don't think most hockey fans will have a problem with what Wyshynski said at the end. Look, if you cross-check a guy in a pretty dangerous area of the ice and cause him to go into the boards head first or something along those lines, yeah, maybe you should get the gate for a couple of games. Maybe it shouldn't just be a couple of minutes here. Yeah, or if you cross-check in a, at a specific spot on the body, he said as well there, which I thought was interesting. And maybe that's not as much of a punishment as, you know, sending somebody into the boards. But I just think, yeah, some recognition that, yeah, cross-checking is dangerous. It has a, a lot of potential to injure people out there. And it's, you know, not – it's against the rules. And I know there is debate about, okay, what's a, what counts as a battle in front of the net? When does it graduate to a full-on cross-check? But – yeah, I am all for putting a little bit more emphasis on monitoring those cross-checks. I mean, the real question, as always, will be, can they stick with it not only for the entire regular season, but do they stick with it when the playoffs roll around? Well, and some of the calls are obvious, like the ones we just described. Okay, guy skating down, he's about five to seven feet from the boards, and it's that cross-check from behind that sends him catapulting into the board, head or shoulder first, and emerges from that with some kind of injury. It's a really dangerous play. Like, that seems to be an obvious cross-check. But what about those ones in front of the net where it is a battle zone and you're allowed to push and and cross-check a little bit, but we have a certain length. Like, I've made this... I've made this comparison to four before and I don't know this is where they're going, Jamie, because I don't know exactly how they go about enforcing it, but is it like pass interference? in the NFL for offensive pass interference or the CFL. Look, if we see your arm extended, now we're going right. to have to call it. But if you keep it in tight and you just sort of push a little bit, we can live with that. I think there are a lot of kind of difficult edge cases, right, or, or mm-hmm. 
plays where it's hard to interpret, okay, is that a cross-check? Is that something we want in the game? Is that something we don't want in the game? I also think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to get rid of, right? There, like, there's still a ton of plays where you can pretty clearly look at it and say, that has no place in the game. And whether it's because it's dangerous, whether it's because, you know, there's no real hockey intent to it, it's just trying to bruise the other player a little bit, whatever it is, there are tough cases. And I do think there needs to be a debate around, okay, exactly where do we want to draw the line? But I also just think there's a ton of relatively easy cases that you want out of the game, too. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd. We are now joined by the Athletics' Haley Salvian, one of our favorites, and she's taking time out of her day to join us here. Thank you very much for doing this. How are you today, Haley? No, well, thank you. Uh, this is one of my favorite shows. I chose to be inside today, um, so I'm <laughs> doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, last time you were outside, and it was noisier for you than it was for us. I suppose before I get to any hockey talk, I need to find out if you were able to find a decent pizza on the West Coast during your vacation. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I We ended up just getting sushi. Um, we I think we ate sushi um, almost every day, either sushi or seafood. And I don't know, I think we were just like, maybe we should get pizza today. And then we just um, ordered sushi and went down to I think English Bay Beach with my dog. I, my French bulldog made the trip too, and yeah, we had a little uh, you know picnic with our sushi on the beach, and it, it was beautiful. I I almost didn't come back from my vacation. I think <laughs> you know I maybe wouldn't have been the sen or flame. Oh geez, sen flames beat writer. I almost just stayed in Tofino, stay in Vancouver because it's beautiful out there. Yeah, it's not a bad decision. It's almost that, hey, don't overthink this. You look out there, the ocean's right there. It's not far for the fish yeah. to get on my table. Let's just go with that. Yeah, no, we, uh, you know, we did surfing in Tofino, and I said to the surf instructor, yeah, I totally understand why people just drop everything and come out here and do this, because it's uh, just a completely different world out there, it feels like, and you can unplug. There's no cell reception. So, yeah, I... Uh, almost wouldn't have been able to do this because I was just going to stay forever. <laughs> this is my bad segue out of it because Brad Living didn't land the biggest free agent fish on the market. Oh, he gosh. tried to make some <laughs> trades out there. And I want to know before we get into what to expect at rookie camp, that sort of thing. And if there's even a possibility of one of the youngsters in the flames organization cracking the lineup, what's, what's your interpretation of some of those comments that came out in Eric Francis's article yesterday of Brad Living? basically saying without saying we tried but we couldn't really get anything done in making a deal yeah well I think it checks out I, I think that there was you know um you know national insiders you know my own reporting I think you know it, it was no secret that you know I think the Flames wanted to make changes this offseason Brad Tree Living said so himself back in May I think you know he said on um, an interview with Pat Steinberg, you know, for the first time, we know that we really need to try to do something. And, and, you know, the flames were not, you know, they had, they said it in a few different ways, but they said that they had to make change, but they've always said that, you know, change isn't always easy. And I, I think, you know, the fact that they didn't make any overhauls, like we didn't see that the change to the core that everyone's been asking for and that I think is needed. And, and I think, it sounds like a cliche and it sounds like I'm just, you know, paying lip service to the general manager, but you know, what he's saying is true. I mean, you have players who all had down seasons and, and, you know, when you look at 
historically how they've been, you know, even Matthew Kachuk didn't have a great year. So you're looking at a bunch of players, you know, Sean Monahan's in the second straight bad year, and then his season also ended in a surgery. So there's, you know, even if people think Sean Monahan can have a comeback, you know, then you have this injury history that's troubling for some for some clubs, which I think, you know, is difficult. And then, you know, Johnny Goudreau had a, a good year, but it was another year under a point per game performance for him. So you have a bunch of players who probably a couple of years ago had good trade value, but they don't really have great trade value right now. And I think, you know, the teams kind of paid themselves into a corner with, with a core that's either, you know, aging, um, has a big contract or, you know, they had a difficult season and, and it's not easy to, not easy to make a trade with players who have diminished trade value um, I think the player who probably has the most value would be someone like Matthew Kachuk or Elias Lindholm but what are you getting in return for those pieces you know um, those probably are the ones that you'd rather build around because their age and their skill level if you trade Matthew Kachuk you're looking for a Matthew Kachuk to replace him with right so it's it's always easier said than done to create change and like I said I know that sounds like such a cliche and I think we chatted during free agency and I, and I think I even said then, like, I think fans probably need to be prepared that there's not going to be that much that's going to happen. Cause you just go down the list and there's something that probably makes a trade not happen for a lot of these players. And I think we really saw that come to fruition. So I think the kind of change that we saw with the Calgary flames was, um, you know, they can't make the overhaul to the roster. The roster technically um, is not better this year than it was last year because you couldn't replace what you lost in Mark Giordano. I think the forward group's better, the defense group's worse. Um, but I think what they did is they just added pieces that would work in a Daryl Sutter system. And, you know, the Flames are going to be harder to play against. They're going to be tough. They're going to be bigger. Um, they're going to have a full training camp under Daryl Sutter. I think the changes with the Calgary Flames we're going to see are going to be more related to what the coach can do. Can Daryl get the best out of Johnny Goudreau, out of Sean Monaghan, out of Matthew Kachuk? Um, Can he get Trevor Lewis to be a a piece of this? What can he do with Blake Coleman? So we didn't see an overhaul to the roster, but I think, you know, the change is going to come from whatever Daryl can do with what he's working with here. Haley, you you used the phrase in that answer, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. And I think that's a a really good way of looking at it. It's an interesting situation, right, where the front office has come out and said, we need to make changes. Now they're saying, you know what, look, it's easier said than done. We tried. We weren't able to get things done. Given that Mm -hmm. situation, how much pressure is on the front office? And do you think, you know, if the season doesn't go as planned or as hoped, could uh, could the Calgary Flames be looking at a new general manager, you know, going into next season? Yeah, well, I think this is such a results-based business, right? Like most things. And um, I think if this year doesn't go as planned again, and it's a really disappointing season again, you know, I think, um, I mean, I would never say that there's not going to be a change made. I think um, there's a lot of people who look at, you know, the last, I guess, seven seasons, um, under general manager Brad Tree Living and, and the Flames have have won what um, one one playoff round and one play in round in the last seven years maybe two um, you know that's that's not enough and this is a team that's been you know kind of stuck in that mushy middle for a long time and you know there's been there's been good RFA deals you know Brad Tree Living has done a really good job getting you know fair value out of a lot of his players and. Um, you know, he hasn't made many big trades to overhaul the, overhaul the core. And there have been some, you know, UFA signings that, 
you know, I think a lot of people will look at and say, oh, that didn't age great. So I, I think, yeah, if this season is disappointing, I think, you know, it's more than fair to wonder if there's going to be there's going to be a change. You know, they signed Daryl to a three year deal and, and that's kind of, you know, the course that they're taking. I can't imagine they relieve a coach um, in Daryl. Um, but I think, yeah, if the, if the owners believe that it's the, the makeup of this roster, that's the problem. And, you know, that's their right to make that change after several years of, of not getting anything done. Um, obviously, it's a little too soon to tell because we don't know what the Flames are going to look like. And we don't know how they're going to fare. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a fair question. I think it's something that we're probably going to be talking about a lot um, this year with the Calgary Flames, you know if they have a bad start or if they start well, but then they dip off, if they're not in the playoff race, this is something that's probably going to come up a lot. And we're really not going to know until something ultimately happens. And I know a lot of people were wondering if this summer was going to be it for Bradtree living and, and it wasn't. So I don't know. It's a tough one to answer because it's not the first time that this has been a major topic of conversation with the Calgary Flames. And the, the Daryl Sutter component, I think, is really interesting as well. As you said, un- unlikely to relieve the coach. And Daryl Sutter is also not the kind of coach that you're probably going to, you know, he's not interested in being around for a rebuild or anything like that, right? And mm-hmm. I think in other situations, a team like Calgary might look at it and say, okay, you know, this group's not getting it done. Let's tear things down and try again. But because of the coaching situation, because of the fact that they're invested in Daryl Sutter, that's not really an mm-hmm. option on the table, it doesn't feel like. Well, I would say it's more than just Daryl, too. I think if you look at the Flames' kind of body of work over the last year, um, you know, even going back to, you know, the last offseason, I mean, the moves that they're making are not moves made by a team with an eye towards a rebuild. Um, I guess this just kind of shows how condensed everything's been. But, you know, they go out and they sign Jacob Markstrom. They go out and they get their goalie that they believe can push them over the edge. They get Chris Tanev because they believe he can be a great top four or, you know, top pair defender for the Calgary Flames. Um, You know, they make that coaching change with with Jeff Ward. They say, you know what, we're not going to go down with the ship and just sell at the deadline and and rebuild. They they fire Jeff Ward after a win and bring in Daryl Sutter, who's the coach that they kind of wanted all along. Um, And they go and they make that hire. And then, yeah, you have a guy like Daryl Sutter who – you know, he said, I came back to win another Stanley Cup. I've got unfinished business. So you have that component as well. And then you have this, this off season, you know, they go out and they get Blake Coleman. Um, you know, that was one of the bigger free agents on the market. He has back-to-back Stanley Cups. They believe that he's somebody who can add something again to push them over the edge. And they, you know, they, they, they lose Mark Giordano, um, which, which isn't great considering, you know, he's still a, you know, a top pair, top four defender, um, but they don't want to give up the assets um, for that. And, and they make all these other, you know, free agent signings that they believe are going to make them the team that Daryl needs to win a Stanley Cup. Um, so it, it's not just Daryl. He's a big part of it because I think we, we can all agree that he's not going to coach a rebuilding team. He's not going to coach a teardown. Um, but it's that entire body of work that shows like this is not an organization who's interested in rebuilding right now. And I know a lot of fans say just tear it down. Um, I, I just don't see that being a realistic option. I think even looking at, um, you know, going out and signing players um, recently, like, um, you know, 
uh, Brad Richardson. You go out and you sign Erica Branton. You sign Michael Stone. Those are moves that are made to have a veteran in those roster spots over a young player because they'd rather have somebody who can be there to help them win now than develop a young player. Um, at least that's, you know, one interpretation of it. I, I think, you know, young players still need to earn their roster spots and there's still maybe, you know, development to be had with some of them, but, you know, they're ensuring that there's a veteran player who can take that spot because they want to make sure that they can win and get into things. So yeah, Daryl's a big part of it, but it, it's that whole body of work that, that just shows their, uh, interested in, in winning for sure. I don't, I don't see a rebuild happening as much as people maybe crave that. Haley Salvian at the athletic joining us here today for a few more minutes on rental and sermon with Jamie Dodd. You've very adeptly outlined the pressures that exist in Calgary. We've been asking our listeners this morning, is there more pressure to do something this season in Calgary, Vancouver or Edmonton from where you stand, which would you put at the top of those three? Oh, geez, I guess do something in terms of actually win. <laughs> yeah, get to the playoffs, do something in the playoffs, yeah. whatever it happens to be, where is there the most pressure? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know, and maybe it's because I'm a bit removed from the market, but I feel like it's not Vancouver because the Canucks are were in that kind of like rebuild phase for a little bit, whereas the Flames and the Oilers have just been like trying to go for it for so long and they they've come up short and obviously you know the, the Canucks have, have you know they had that great bubble and I think um that's a team obviously the fan base wants them to win and but I think they at least have had that kind of place where they're like okay we're gonna you know restructure a little bit and we're gonna like build up to something um whereas the Flames and Oilers just you know they've been kind of going at it being in the mushy middle and haven't won I would probably say there's more pressure on a team like Edmonton um, just because of, you know, you have Connor McDavid in his prime and you have Leon Dreisaitl, you just got Zach Hyman. Um, you made all those, you know, defensive signings and all those moves. And if you can't win a playoff series, then I mean, when are you going to? Um, I think it's a good question. You could probably make a fair argument for any of them, but I would probably say, I'd probably say the Oilers just because you've got, you know, Connor McDavid playing in his prime and you haven't exactly won anything so I don't know what do you guys think about Vancouver part of that equation but we actually had Calgary and Vancouver neck and neck Jamie had Vancouver first I said to catch me on a different day I might say Calgary but Edmonton I just think there's the least fallout in Edmonton as far as as shuffling of the roster or big time yeah. personnel whereas in Calgary and Vancouver if it goes awry there are going to be major changes maybe the most sure. would be in Calgary Maybe the most. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, in terms of like, if you don't do this, what's going to happen for sure? Yes. Um, One final question for it. Pressure. (laughs) Yeah, well, and that's the thing. They're all rabid fan bases, and I think your point is a good one. Like, you can make a very good case for each of them, and that's just kind of where we exist in Canadian markets specifically. Vasily Pod Colson is going to go to Canucks prospects camp, but he's going to be on the Vancouver Canucks, barring something completely unforeseen. Is that the case in Calgary? Is there any way to crack this lineup now for any of the young draft picks, especially those first rounders that you're going to see over the course of the next week in Calgary? Yeah, I think the only players, and you know, again, like you just said, barring anything unforeseen, I think um, the only players who probably have an outside chance of cracking the flames would be, you know, Connor Zary or Jacob Peltier. I think, um, those two players could have a chance to, you know, you know, have a good um, rookie camp and then have a really good main NHL camp 
And, you know, the best case scenario is one or both of them stealing a roster spot from, you know, Trevor Lewis or, or Brad Richardson. Um, I don't see that being all that realistic considering those are two players who signed in Calgary to play with Daryl. They won Stanley cups with Daryl in LA. I don't think that's all that realistic, but I do think if one of them is so good, like, you know, they're not going to say, no, you're not going to make the roster because we like Trevor Lewis better. If they are so good and they force the hand of the decision makers with the Calgary Flames, then, you know, you could see that happening. Um, so the way I would say it is, you know, there, there, there's not a, an open spot penciled in on the board, but, you know, it, it could be stolen. That remains to be seen, but I think, you know, what we really should be looking for with prospects like Zari and, and Peltier is how competitive can they be and, you know, what can they do for themselves in these camps? Can they put themselves up at the top of, you know, a midseason call-up list if if Richardson gets hurt or, or Milan Lucic gets hurt or there's some kind of injury? Did Zari and Peltier do enough in these camps and during the season up until that point to get that first call? I think that's kind of you know, if you're the Flames or you're a fan, you're just really hoping that these two two young pieces can just be competitive and, and you know, get the decision makers with the Flames front office, with the coaching staff, really thinking about, okay, this is maybe something that we could use down the line. Because um, right now there aren't really any roster spots available on the on the NHL roster. They have 12 forwards signed to one-way contracts. So it's, it, you know, and you don't want one of your shiny new prospects to be the 13th forward and, realistically I don't think you want either of them being you know a fourth line minimal minute checking player so I don't think there's really um, a realistic scenario where we see these two playing in the NHL full-time but I think what you really want to see is them be competitive enough that they can put their names into the hat for you know if there's a, a spot that opens up down the line we always appreciate the insight thank you very much for your dining update as well we needed to answer that question we had listeners texting us as well they obviously follow you online and maybe next time we can see if you know what kind of phone daryl sutter has we got off on a tangent a couple of days ago and we're very curious to find out what kind of phone brand well you year, think he's like a that. blackberry guy or something this is what we're wondering <laughs> this or is a rotary phone maybe <laughs> i don't know about that i don't know maybe he's an iphone guy maybe he'll surprise you i i think I think the yeah maybe I think he might be up to date with the technology. I would say yeah. iPhone. That's just my gut instinct. He seems like a whip smart guy. I don't think he'd go for a BlackBerry or flip phone. I'm with you. Like if it was exposed next week that he had two burner accounts and he had uh, like all the technology and that he was doing I stuff that way. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you. This is yeah, what I'm but saying. I also wouldn't be surprised if he has like a Nokia or like a Motorola Razor, you know, like I wouldn't be shocked either way. If it's a really old phone that barely works or if it's the brand new iPhone that hasn't come out yet, like either could make sense to me with Daryl. This is exactly <laughs> why we're curious. Exactly why we're yeah. curious. Haley, thank you once again. Enjoy the Blue Jays game if that's what you're doing this afternoon. And we will talk puck with you again soon. Cool. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. That is Haley Salvian of The Athletic giving us her view on the pressure situation and the pressures on the Calgary Flames. Some really interesting comments yesterday from Brad Treliving. I mentioned the Blue Jays game. It gets started in less than 15 minutes' time. We're going to turn you over to that on 960 on the eastern side of the Rockies. We've still got another hour to go. We'll keep you updated as to what is happening in the Jays game and their rubber match with the Rays. And we'll dig a little more into the Canucks prospects camp, which gets going tomorrow. Harmondale joins us next. He of The Athletic. 
right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. No. It wouldn't be that one. That's not the one, Greg. That's not the one. I love the band, but that's not the one. We've had a couple of people, Jamie, Church of Pedersen included, loyal listener to the show, say, <laughs> look, if you guys can catch Rintoul singing, if you guys get him on air doing a little karaoke to a tune coming back, he will donate some money to, I believe, the Canuck Autism Network, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I think Is so, that what yes. you saw? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So there's that, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Need a better I think job. it's going to take some work. It's going to take some work to catch you on, yeah, on air, so. on mic. I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I'm not sure. I'm having a little problem with my headset. Hopefully, it's coming through just fine to you there, Jamie. And hopefully, when Harmon Dial joins us in just a couple of minutes, we don't have any problem with the audio here. Having trouble hearing myself, but maybe that's a good thing for me, not so much for our listeners. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you loud and clear, Scotty. So if you do want to break out in song, we'll all get the full deal. Don't worry. Okay, good. Very good to know. All right, that sounds better. We got the technical difficulty adjusted there. You know it's the measure of a great sporting event, at least one that you're invested in, when you're willing to completely uproot your setup during the break to make sure that you can watch it live. <laughs> the Jays are playing a game here where I normally do this show from in my house. I like to have a window there. As you know, Jamie, it's been a long time since we've been in studio back yep. at Sportsnet 650, but there's no window in that studio. So one of the advantages to working at home is that I can set up in front of a window. I can actually see the outside world. I can see daylight. I can see what the weather is. I have moved. I have moved to in front of a television. Jays and Rays coming up. Rubber match. Let's go. Let's go. Big game. They're all big games, right? Unless, unless one of the three teams involved at least does something truly crazy in a negative or positive fashion, they're all big games from here on out. I have it on, but with the way my setup is, I kind of have to, like, I can't watch it while I'm talking. I have to kind of turn around to see the TV. So I'll be able to monitor it, but not quite as closely as you are. If you're on the PVR train, we will try to give you a little bit of a warning before we update you. But over the course of this next hour, we'll let you know what's going on. The wild card race. Yeah, you lose one game like last night, which is the first time in the while for the Jays. But the Yankees win and the Red Sox win. And all of a sudden, you're not up in the race anymore. we got 17 games to go, 15 in the case of the Red Sox. It is going to be fun from this point forward. Canucks rookie camp, Jamie, as you know, starts in the next couple of days. I think more than anything, what jumped out to Canucks fans when they saw the rookie roster released is that there weren't a lot of names on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be hard to get much in the way of a scrimmage together, right? What is it? It's 11 people total, I think. Like eight, 11 skaters anyways, eight forwards, three defensemen, and the one goalie. So uh, they're going to be pulling a lot of trainers and stuff on the ice to fill out the numbers, I think. Yeah, a little half court if you will, hockey yeah. style, and it did make me wonder, maybe we can find out from Nolan Baumgartner or Brad Shaw, did one of you guys just really want to skate with these guys? There's only like <laughs> one defensive pairing, and then there's an extra defenseman, so did one of you guys actually just want to suit up and, and go back to your glory days and, and play in part of this rookie scrimmage? Yeah, but that is a definitely, you know, you see the roster come out, and you're like, oh, I see who's there, and it's like, oh, wow, okay, <laughs> pretty pretty bare-bones affair at Canucks Rookie Camp this year. We'll get more on the Canucks prospects and talk more about the organization with Harmon Dale of The Athletic, who joins us now. Harmon, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you guys? 
We are well, and congratulations on your latest podcast endeavor. I see you got signed this week. Yeah, really excited about that. Um, it's, you know, with, uh, with the Canucks conversation guys, David Quadrelli and Chris Faber, obviously, Faber uh, being uh, with Sportsnet as well, it was, uh, it's always been really seamless with them, and uh, it was a ton of, uh, ton of fun to be able to sign on with them. And we're looking forward to the conversations you have there. And we're looking forward to the one that you're having with us today. Before we get into the Canucks prospects, we're going to ask you the question we've been asking all of our guests today. And it's pretty simple. Which Western Canadian team, and I include the two from Alberta and the one here on the West Coast, which of them has the most pressure this season? What do you think? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think it, it has to be, in my opinion, a toss-up between, ooh, all of them are really close. I think it's... It might be, for, for my money, it might be Edmonton. And the reason I say that is just because the, the magnitude of the potential consequences if this season goes sideways. Connor McDavid, and it's pretty crazy to think about because it feels like he just entered the league yesterday, but he's entering his seventh NHL season. And if this year is another bust, you, you really don't know where that story could be headed and, 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 and where that frustration could, could take uh, him and the organization and especially with Leon Dreisaitl I mean at some point um, he may choose to walk the path of Jack Eichel whereas I think if you look at the Canucks yes this is a, this is a very high stakes season um, but if it doesn't pan out yes there are going to be grave consequences but it's not as if Pedersen and Hughes are going to be demand or are, are going to be potentially demanding trades right so I think that's the worry if you're Edmonton is if you have another season without post uh, without uh, playoff success, where does that leave McDavid and Drysaddle in terms of their frustration level with the organization? Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it, Harm. You know, I, I said Vancouver just because I don't see how the front office can escape you know major consequences if they don't live up to expectations this year. But you're right if you think mcdavid is on the uh on the precipice of potentially trying to move i mean that's kind of the worst case scenario in edmonton that would obviously be an absolute disaster and Calgary's interesting because uh, if they fall flat again you know you could say maybe the coach is out maybe the gm is out and you're looking at you know overhauling the roster for the flames as well yeah and the flames are just caught in such a uh, middle ground where they you know, for a while when they were through their rebuilding phase, I don't think they properly kind of committed to it. And they've kind of been in that Minnesota wild uh, type of purgatory where they've got, they've consistently been able to field a pretty good team on paper, but it's never been contender quality. And so, um, you know, they'll pretty consistently make the playoffs obviously didn't last year, but they don't have postseason success. And obviously as a result of that, they're not um, getting the type of draft capital that's, going to allow them to to take the next step either and so especially when you look at how aggressive they were la last offseason and signing Jacob Markstrom to that long a long-term deal uh, same for Chris Tanev they really kind of pushed their chips into the middle of the table uh, and you know their prospect pool isn't very strong and yet again they're not a contending caliber team so um, I think quite clearly now especially now that they brought in Blake Coleman like they've committed to, to the idea of trying to win now and they've really got to figure this out because uh, I mean, if, if they're not going to be able to cash in on, you know, essentially putting their chips into the middle of the table now, well, you look at the prospect pool and, and lack of talent there. Um, you know, they could be in for uh, a really rough ride with some of these contracts and, and just overall having to tear it down and rebuild in a few years. Like this is really their window to win now. 
Speaking of prospects, the Canucks rookie camp gets going this week. Not a particularly large roster, as Scotty and I were talking about just before you got on the line, but the name that everyone will be paying the closest attention to is Vasily Podkols in the 10th overall pick from a couple years ago. Now, he's obviously expected to be a part of the main roster this year. It's not as if he needs to come into rookie camp and really turn heads to earn his spot, but it is exciting that we get the chance to see Pod Coles in his kind of first official action of any sort with the Vancouver Canucks, not just at rookie camp this week or even in training camp, but looking at this whole year for, for Pod Coles and what are you kind of most curious to see from him as he makes the transition from the KHL to the NHL? I'm curious to see how his offensive game translates. It uh, it was interesting watching him in the KHL last year because you could clearly see the offensive skill there in terms of his playmaking, in terms of vi- in terms of uh, in terms of his vision, um, how he was just able to see the ice and create uh, a lot of scoring chances. But the one thing that kind of st- uh, stuck out to me was he was kind of situated in a role bottom six minutes uh, playing along, alongside grinders and you could tell that he was kind of caught um, in a scenario where he wasn't uh, really allowed to express himself offensively with his uh, with his creativity because if he made mistakes he was immediately going to be stapled to the bench and um, from that perspective I'm uh, you know coming over to North America and this is where I, uh, I've been, you know, contrasting his situation to Hoaglander's, right? Because when Hoaglander came um, to the NHL, from day one, he was unafraid to take offensive risks, to take a defender on one-on-one at the offensive blue line, to try and thread uh, thread the needle with a pass across the seam. And with Pod Colson, it's been different because he's had to play a lot safer in the KHL just because if he made any mistakes or made a turnover – um, he wouldn't get those minutes. So now coming over to Vancouver, um, I'm going to be fascinated to see if there are enough dynamic elements to his game uh, for him to kind of stick uh, as a productive uh, top six piece. Um, I'm obviously not expecting him to drive the bus, but um, it's it's going to be curious. I'm, I'm curious to see if there are going to be enough um, you know, qualities in him as, as a digger, as someone who can retrieve pox, as someone who can work off the cycle, uh, really excel in a small area game uh, to stick in the top six, or whether he's going to have to kind of um, take a slower path where he starts on a third or fourth line, um, more likely a third line, and uh, kind of uh, just more gradually works his way up, uh, kind of similar maybe to how Bo Horvat progressed, where um, you could tell when Horvat first came into the NHL that, um, it, it took him time to gain that confidence to express himself offensively. So I'm going to be curious to kind of watch that for Pod Coulson. Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here today, talking Canucks ahead of prospect camp, which gets going tomorrow. And then we're just a little over a week away from main camp getting going with the Vancouver Canucks. Pod Colson is obviously the apple of everybody's eye. He's the most interesting prospect at camp for very understandable reasons. What about Jet Wu? He's one of three defensemen at this camp. In your estimation, what does a successful season look like in professional hockey for Jet Wu this year? I think um, with Jet Wu, it's just now he's had the first taste of American League action uh, last year in, I think, what was probably a watered-down AHL um, kind of, you know, uh, just, just league quality because of the taxi squad setup and how many of the top AHL players were 
um, you know, join, joining uh, NHL uh, kind of squads there. So, you know, with a higher and improved AHL, it would be great, I think, if Jet Wu could now just take the next step and become uh, an impact top four all situations D. I mean, he kind of got a, a taste of that uh, last year where he got a little bit of power play, he was spending time with PK, uh, played uh, five and five minutes with Jack Rathbone. Uh, but now I think if he could be more assertive and, and be a leader on that blue line, some of the coaching staff can count on, uh, particularly to say close out le- to close out uh, leads and, and and just be the go-to kind of one of the go-to defenders, especially on an Abbotsford uh, team that's already deep. I think that would constitute uh, a step in the right direction for him. I think with Jet Wu, it was interesting because I think for a long time the organization has expected that he'd be. Uh, a longer-term pro- project, and I, I still think that's the direction he's trending in. But um, last season, I think he definitely opened some eyes, uh, especially starting at camp with the way um, that he didn't look out of place at all in terms of his pace and um, how he was uh, able to kind of separate players from puck. Uh, and similarly, at uh, again, down in the minors, he really seemed to hold his own. And so now I think it's you know, he proved that he can stick in the AHL and be an effective player. Now it's about, hey, can you be a high-end player uh, and be one of the leaders on that blue line? And and I think that would uh, that would really be an encouraging sign if uh, he'd be able to to take that kind of step. Well, and I'm sure that in his mind, he'd love to be an option at some point this season for Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner and, and Brad Shaw and the proximity of the HL club and all of that. Just before we get back to prospect camp, we've talked about, okay, the skaters up front are stronger, mixed reaction on the blue line and, and mixed opinion on whether they're better there. Everybody's cool with Thatcher Demko and the goaltending situation with bringing in Halak. Overall, how much more flexible is the Canucks organization in terms of the options it provides Travis Green this season than what he has had in previous incarnations? Very. And um, it starts obviously with uh, with the forward group and, and not just the the level of depth that they have in terms of uh, now they've got now they've got enough uh, high end offensive weapons to build three lines that can score, uh, but it's also the number of players that can play multiple positions. Um, especially, I mean, you look at um, uh, players like Holglander and Pod Colson and Garland. They can play both wings. Um, Dickinson can play center or wing. Uh, Miller can play wing or center. Uh, it just gives uh, the coaching staff um, an unbelievable number of potential combinations that they could try. And uh, that's what coaches love. And, and especially someone who's as matchup oriented as Travis Green is, um, it, it, it's it's been very fascinating because when you look at a lot of the underlying numbers of the last couple of seasons and, and how Green's deployed his players, it's tough to find another coach in the NHL who's more extreme uh, and, and and more particular with how he with um, how he um, sort of sends players against um, you know different matchups. And what I mean by that is, for instance, like Bo Horvat, that was Vancouver's de facto shutdown line, and that was essentially the 95th or 99th, almost 99th percentile um, in terms of in terms of the percentage of ice time they spent against um, uh, league competition. And then you'd look at, for instance, the players that were sheltered, like an Adam Gaudet they were among the most sheltered players in the NHL, meaning that um, Green really seems to place an emphasis on playing that kind of matchup game. And so now having all these options at his disposal, uh, it just, it gives him so much, so many options, especially in a full season, you know, injuries are going to happen, especially as the Canucks return to their regular rigorous travel schedule. 
so I think that's going to be crucial. The overall level of organizational depth that they've added, even with Abbotsford, um, it's, you know, you put it all together and, and, and there are obviously going to be some challenges, especially uh, on the back end, but there's no question with respect to at least the coaching staff's going to have a lot of options. Back to the rookie camp here, Harmon, and, you know, Bob Colson, yeah, he's number one, but a lot of people are going to be really interested to see uh, the Canucks' most recent second-round pick, Danila Klimovich, in action as well. We've heard Jim Benning say, okay, he's probably going to go to the QMJHL this year and play his hockey there, and I know, you know, okay, coming in, going into your draft plus one season in major junior hockey, a lot of fans are going to expect him to dominate and put up a ton of points in that league, what do you think are fair expectations for Klimovich as he makes the transition to North American hockey playing probably in a junior league this year? Yeah, I mean, if he's playing in the Q dominance is, is really what you'd be hoping and expecting for. Maybe a little bit of a transitory uh, period at, at, the, at the start of the season. Maybe it takes him a little, little bit of uh, time to acclimate himself to the smaller rink size and everything, but um, I mean, this is a player that at the U18 level against his, uh, against his peers, um, you know, showed really, really well. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about um, his perception around the league as a draft prospect, that's when his stock really started to climb. So he's proven that against, um, against players his own age that he can really produce. And so coming over to the QMJHL, um, I, I think what many of us, believe is the highest scoring of the of the three CHL leagues um, you'd expect him to be a leader for that Huskies team and someone who plays top line minutes you know plays PP1 uh, and can and can really I think you know aside from just the on ice perspective of of scoring I think the what you'd be hoping for is for him to start to really learn how to play uh, more of a professional style of game and what I kind of mean by that is um, when you watched him, you know, whether it was in the Belarusian League um, or even, you know, in the U18s, for all that he did good, there were, I think, elements of Klimovich's game. Um, when you look at, for instance, how many plays he, he one-on-one rushes he'd force, um, and sometimes, you know, tr- having that tunnel vision and trying to do too much, um, uh, sometimes the element of getting frustrated a lot and, and kind of doing the JT Miller where, where he'd be slamming a stick and barking at teammates. So I think uh, just expecting uh, a more mature pro style of game, e- even if it is at the junior level, is something that you'd uh, hope for him as well, where you not only want him to be a leader in terms of the offensive production, but leader um, kind of off the ice and, and kind of developing that maturity as well so that um, he becomes a more responsible uh, responsible player just with things like puck management because we know the offensive package is there just now about, I think, um, not only producing but rounding out his arsenal. So outside of the headliners that are going to be at rookie camp, like Pod Coles and like Klimovich, like Jet Wu as well, is there a guy maybe a little bit more under the radar that you're really excited to get a closer look at here? Yeah, it's I, I'm kind of interested to see um, Victor Person um, he was obviously a seventh round, I believe, pick of the Canucks, uh, pick for the Canucks in the 2020 draft. And he's had, in, you know, when, when I watched tape of him, intriguing skills with uh, how he likes to jump up in the rush. He's a mobile right-handed defenseman. Um, he's got some decent size to him. And, and when you kind of look at Vancouver's organizational needs moving forward, 
um, you know, any right shot defenseman that they, that they have is really critical if, if they can hit. And, you know, he was unfortunately in a tough spot last year where um, the J20 league uh, shut down midseason because of the COVID situation. So it was tough to really get much of a look at him last year. And so uh, coming into this season, he's going to play for the, for the Blazers in the WHL. So we're going to get a much closer look at him and just being able to see him at rookie camp and, um, I think it's going to be fascinating to project where his game game is at. Obviously, he's going to be a long shot if he ever does uh, make it to the NHL, but uh, or a long term pro- project. Um, he's not someone who you expect to be ready anytime soon. But uh, just being able to get a gauge on on his skill set and um, and how that could kind of translate uh, to North American ice, um, especially again six foot two, almost two hundred pounds have a guy like that that can skate as well as he does that can move the puck as well as he does it's a good passer um he's definitely intriguing to me as well as Connor Lockhart I mean as a as a six round pick last year um you know he he fell his stock fell mostly because he didn't really get a shot uh, to play last year because of the because of the uh, OHL not uh, not running but you look at Lockhart um in his um high offensive skill and, and the pedigree and um, this is a player who many expected could have been a, uh, a pick within the first two or three rounds, um, if it weren't for the for the uh, uh, the OHL um, league shutting down. So, um, I think he was one of the Canucks' best bang for buck selections um, at uh, at the draft last, uh, at the draft this past year. So, seeing uh, Lockhart, seeing Person, I think uh, those are two of the players that I'm most excited to see aside from uh, the main names. Well, you can do a good bit in the stands with Person. Who are you here to see? Person. Yeah, I know which one person no, the player like you can you can work on that harm and we can incorporate that into your game we can have a little fun with that pressing question of the week we have to know where do you come out on taco tuesday is taco salad acceptable on taco tuesday or does it have to be the traditional taco that you hold in your hand i think it has to be the traditional taco where you hold it in your hand thank you so, thank you harm it's unfortunate you're not more inclusive harm and it's really really disappointing that you're not more inclusive i would have thought that someone with a global mind like your own would have thought differently but that's okay we all have things to work on i'm sorry i'm a little bit elitist when it comes to tacos i'd like you to reconsider that throughout the rest of the day all right buddy thank you very much for your time we look forward to doing it again soon thanks for having me that is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Good news for him and good news for Canucks Conversation. He signed on with that podcast a little bit earlier this week, and you love reading his work in The Athletic. And great news from Toronto. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I told you I'd give you a little bit of a heads up, and I will. I won't tell you exactly what it was if you want to turn your radio down for a second. I'm excited, Jamie. The Let's Jays. go. Robbie Ray steps up, strikes out the first two batters, goes one, two, three in the first inning, and the Jays have just hit a three-one, three-run bomb. Bo Bichette is putting the Barrio home run jacket on right now. Vladdy had a rocket of a double. Semyon got himself a walk. Those are your three runs. Three-nothing Jays, one out, bottom of the first inning. Feel good for Bo Bichette. I thought he had, you know, look, okay, they're going to lose games. You don't have to find a goat, someone to hang it on every time they lose. But I thought he had a really tough at-bat in a big situation last night. So happy to see him come through in a big way here. Yeah, he had a couple of them. He couldn't deal with that slider, and he chased in a situation that you were talking about last night. No problem with that one as well. Good news for the Jays' offense. Early, that's three more runs than they were able to produce through nine innings against the Rays yesterday. We'll keep you apprised of that. 
And we will get to something I love about this wild card race. You're going to watch it play out today. We'll touch on that and much more next. Your text as well, 650-650. It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. This is Rent to Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We will keep you updated as to what is happening between the Blue Jays and Rays. That's where you get a chance to turn your radio down if you don't want to know. Toronto up 3 nothing, top of 2. Rays open the top of 2 with a double off the left field wall. Robbie Ray on the mound. First runner, pardon me, first batter who has reached base for the Rays in this game. It's Scott Rintoul and it's Jamie Dodd. There's a rule in this business, Jamie, don't ever save content. Don't save content when you have it, <laughs> go with it. I violate it sometimes because I do think there are certain topics they need more room to breathe. So I'm doing everything I can to hold on to a topic that you and I thought we might get to today. I'm trying to hold on to it till at least tomorrow because I think we'll get some good feedback on it. It's actually a listener-inspired topic from last week. But what we're going to watch today as baseball fans sort of plays into this, and it's not a giveaway by me saying that. One of the things I love about what's happening today, I'm a Jays fan, you're a Jays fan. I know not everybody out there is, but this race is extremely compelling in the American League. And we've got Yankees fans, and we've got Red Sox fans, and we've got Mariners fans out there, and maybe some low-lying A's fans who are holding on to hope <laughs> against all hope. But it's a great race in the American League wild card. It's awesome when the games are happening at the same time and you're flipping around and you're checking scores and one game's in between innings, so you flip over to the other. That's fun. But it's also really fun the way it works out today. So the Jays are the first of these three teams that are in a deadlock for the AL wildcard race that will play today. And they're displaced from the Mariners and Red Sox by just over an hour. So by the time that game starts, you're going to have an idea as to how this game's going, whether Toronto is still out in front or whether Tampa Bay's mounted a comeback and it's a real tooth-and-nail ball game, all of that. And we saw that yesterday. The Yankees played early, and the Rays, pardon me, the Red Sox and the Jays, they kind of knew what they needed to do. And you're going to yep. see an element of that today. Like the, the Yankees will play later, and we expect them to win because they're playing the Orioles. But by the time they get around to doing it, unless one of these games goes to a crazy long extra innings, the Yankees are going to know, okay, here's our challenge for the day. We either have to keep pace or we've got an opportunity to go ahead. I love that about this time of year. The only thing that would have been better from a listener perspective, I think, or a viewer perspective, I should say, is if you know we had the Jays game here at noon and then we had the Yankees and Orioles at 4 and the Red Sox and Mariners were playing later at night again, right, at 7 out on the West Coast. And yep. I understand why they're not because it's a getaway day for the Red Sox, but that would have been awesome to have kind of a triple header of games with stakes, of games featuring the teams involved in this race. Still sets up pretty nicely as is, though. Yeah, it's pretty fun, man. It's just so fun at this time of year to go through it. And McAuliffe said it earlier, and those who are not baseball fans, maybe you'll just never get it. But if you are invested at all, even if you're a casual and you can find a team to glom on to, there's nothing better because it's happening every day and the swings you go through. I think, Jamie, because the Red Sox and Yankees each made up ground yesterday, I think there were Jays fans that probably just for a brief moment, but there was a moment where they probably went, oh, man, are you kidding me? They lost this game. And then they realized, oh, hold on a second. They've only lost two games in all of September. There's nothing for me to complain about here. Well, <laughs> Jays fans found a way, though, right? And, you know, they, they oh, why didn't Charlie Montoyo pinch hit for Reese McGuire in the ninth inning? What is he doing? How, how could he have possibly done that? And 
you know, I'm having fun with it, but that is, look, that's what happens when you get in high pressure situations. And I think ultimately what most Jays fans are doing is just kind of stepping back and enjoying the moment, enjoying that they have put themselves in a position to be in these high pressure moments down the stretch here, that they're in a legitimate postseason race with only a couple of weeks left. But it was pretty funny to see some of the overreaction on Twitter last night. Like, what? This team lost are, to the Rays of all teams? One of the best teams in the league? Are you kidding me? How dare they? We had somebody texted in earlier, earlier, Terry in the Ridge, and Terry's a big baseball fan. He's a big Canadian baseball fan as well. And Terry said something along the lines, Jamie, of, come on, guys, it's not all just American League West. That's not American League East, pardon me. That's not what this conversation should be about every single day. There's other teams out there. There's great races in the National League. Tyler O'Neill hit one out over the wall last night for the Cardinals. Why aren't you guys mentioning that? It's a fair point to a certain extent, and Terry and I went back and forth. I agree. We don't talk a lot of National League baseball in here. You and I try to get in questions when we can, and we try to get some of our insiders on that. It's a great race going on between the Giants and the Dodgers. And, yeah, we should probably mention a little more often what Canadians are doing in the game. But by and large, the majority of this this listenership cheers for either the Jays or the Mariners, and there are Yankees and Red Sox fans out there, as I mentioned, and you just don't get most years what you're getting right now well that's the thing if you had to rank if just if the people listening to the show right now the top four teams that people are fans of it's going to be jays mariners and then probably yankees and red sox are number three numbers three and four right and all of those teams happen to be in the american league three of them happen to share a division and they're all in the midst of a playoff race with each other right now. And, you know, the Red Sox and the Mariners are playing each other right now, right? So that has extra significance. It's – I get the complaint, and particularly, you know, with respect to following Canadian players in the National League. We've tried to shine a light on, you know, the Giants and the Dodgers in the NL West as much as we can. But at the same time, it's – I think it's pretty understandable why so much focus has been on the American League recently. Yeah, it's a great race. Robbie Ray just picked up another strikeout here. By the way, remains 3 nothing Toronto. Two out in the top of second. Runner on second for the Rays right now. We have at least somebody who's cheering for one of the other teams in the race or happens to be the rare Tampa Bay fan in the crowd who texted in, boo, but thanks for letting me know. Go Rays. I would hazard a guess well, that's Scotty, either a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan. Or just a Jays hater. Right? Like yeah. somebody who's like, I, I hate that they're talking about a Toronto team on the Vancouver radio. Go, I don't want them to win. I want them to fall down. Go raise. I think that might be another scenario there. Jeff, the Cubs fan, says there's nothing better than fall ball. He happens to be a Cubs fan. It's awesome. And then there is Dan who texts in. The only thing I'd say is that if they'd played better earlier in the season, then the Jays wouldn't have needed to have gone 12 and 2 so far in September to be in the race it's a fair point and we talked about yep. it at the time because there were a lot of games that were being blown and there were a lot of games where the jays were right in them late and couldn't get the offense over which seems laughable now given the amount of runs they put up but that was those were the two real struggles for this team early in the season yeah they, it was a it was a massive uh struggle for them and i mean we all know what the bullpen went through and then what they went through with runners in scoring position in August and just in general, the offense drying up. I agree. Like, yeah, of course. It, you know, we, we pay so much more attention to the games in September, but, I mean, they count the same in the standings as the games in April and May do. So, yeah, it would be great if they didn't find themselves in this position. But the silver lining is at least it makes for really exciting viewing.
And not surprisingly, we get the text, Toronto Sports Radio in Vancouver. The Jays have a much wider fan base than simply Toronto. And as you mentioned earlier, Jamie, there are always those who hear the word Toronto. It doesn't matter what comes after it. It's terrible. Yeah. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. And I get why people feel that way. I understand it. But between the Jays and the M's and polls that have been conducted throughout this city in years gone by suggest that there are even more Jays fans here than Mariners fans. I do know it's close, but that's usually the team that edges it out. It's a much more widespread audience than simply the GTA. Well, and uh, Scotty, I mean, we get that text, right? Toronto Sports Radio in Vancouver. What's the text we got immediately preceding that one? It's, why can't I listen to this important Jays game <laughs> on this Rogers-owned station? So we're kind of, you know, we're in a rock and a hard place here, right? There is a significant audience that, yeah, probably would love to listen to the game. I mean, you know, maybe we could uh, we could take that one up with our, our program director. Oh, oh, wait, maybe we can't do that. But, yeah, there's some people who would love to listen to the game, and there's also some people who, as you say, they hear Toronto in front of Blue Jays, and they just tune it out immediately after that. Assistant to the program director. Maybe we <laughs> yes. could do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and maybe some of us asked that question last night. Wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge, as to whether or not the game was going to be on today. We don't make the decisions, Jamie. We just play on the field that they give us each and every day, and that means we're on for another 15 minutes or so before we turn things over to Sportsnet. Today, you can get in. Someone said 66% of the respondents to the poll this morning agreed with the anti-Toronto sentiment. Well, we ran a poll the other day, and it was exactly the opposite. There were over 60% of our respondents that say, I can't get enough of this. Keep it going. I'll tell you this, the whole Toronto sports radio thing, when I opened the front page of ESPN.com today, not ESPN Canada, but ESPN.com, do you know who was on the front of it? It was Vladdy Guerrero Jr. Yep. And it was a big piece on how he's become this dominant of a hitter this season and his chase for the Triple Crown. Well, that's just the thing, right? It's... Look, you and I are both Jays fans, so we're yeah we're going to be excited to talk about them when it's relevant, when it makes sense. But this isn't a only in Canada, only in Toronto story right now. It's a major story in North American sports, right? It's Major League Baseball's stretch drive, the playoff chase, the, and as I've said a couple of times, you know, it's the Jays going up against the Yankees and the Red Sox, who we and we know how they dominate media attention and fan attention in the U.S. So it just Kind of happens to be a really big story in the sports world right now. Agreed. Agreed. I've compared it before, and they're only halfway there, but I said if the, if the month continues, then it's on the same level or close to it as what the Colorado Rockies did back in 2007. We talked about that at the time. Sure didn't hurt that Jeff Francis, UBC Thunderbird alum, was on that team and ended up starting Game 1 in the World Series that year. But when a story is that big, it captures international attention, and this happens to be one of them. Jesse in a Jeep says, damn, it would be nice to have our own MLB team to dream. Yeah, I do think it's a dream. Reach. And Yeah, and, it is a dream, but it sure would be nice. Sure, that'd be great. I will settle for, in a heartbeat, give me the Vancouver Canadians back next summer, please. Oh, man, that is going to feel so, so good to go back to the Nat. And I saw they released their schedule uh, they're going to open here in April. I mean, that's a new wrinkle, right, since the mm -hmm. last time they've played because they've moved up to the higher league and they're playing a longer season now. So it won't be, you know, the beautiful summer days right out of the gate for the Canadians. But, look, they've had such a hard go of it. I think it's going to be over 900 days or something like that But by the time they get back into Nat Bailey from when they last played there, which is just brutal given yeah. how fun it is to go to those games. 
it's almost, you know, I know they're, they're always have always been concerned about playing those games earlier in the year, right? When the weather isn't as nice, but at least for that, you know, those first weeks back, I think people are just going to be so excited to go to Nat Bailey and see the Canadians again. It might not matter as much. Well, we talked about this after the weekend. I went to the first couple of games at a sporting event since this whole pandemic went down, other than ones I was covering. I mean, I went and sat in the stands with other people around. I was able to go to Canucks games last year and cover them and, and do the television hits with Murph, but there were there was nobody there. And there's this pent-up... There's just this pent-up demand and feeling of, I want to be at something again around other people. And I understand there's a hesitation. I felt the exact same thing. I can tell you, just getting back in BC Place for a Whitecaps game on Friday night and then a Lions game the following night, just being around a crowd, it was fun. It was fun, and it wasn't close to being full because we have capacity limits right now. But it reminds you of why you love sports and why you love going to games. And it was just really, it was so crushing because it looked like the Canadians were going to be able to come back to Nat Bailey at different points this summer, right? And the Lions were able to get going again. The Whitecaps were able to return home, and you felt like they were going to be able to do it too. And it just didn't work out. And yeah, the layoff between when they last played to when they are eventually able to play is going to be massive. And I do think there will be a lot of pent-up demand specifically to go to Nat Bailey because it is such an enjoyable and popular experience here. You want to get some late-breaking texts in, you can do so. Dunbar Lumber text message inbox is 650-650. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. I mentioned earlier in the program, if fantasy football fans will want to know this, Odell Beckham Jr. is not going to be available. Browns fans will want to know that as well. No setback in his recovery, Jamie, but he's not going to play this weekend against the Houston Texans, and quite frankly, we all know they shouldn't need him to beat the Houston Texans. But it got me thinking about OBJ. We all know how he burst onto the scene with one of the most incredible catches that any of us have ever seen. Some people rank it number one in their own minds. What is he now? What's Odell Beckham Jr. here in 2021? It's a fascinating question. And I mean, you know, speaking purely from a fantasy perspective, I'm already kicking myself for drafting him. I didn't spend a lot of draft capital on him. You know, he's he's down on my list of receivers, but still I kind of feel like Did I get suckered into the name here, even though I drafted him quite a bit later than you would often think of him going? Like, am I still just clinging to the past of Odell Beckham Jr.? Because, I mean, we're a long time removed now from the explosive, dynamic, elite playmaker version of Odell Beckham Jr. We haven't seen that in a while. I'm not sure I do have a clear idea of exactly what he is in the NFL at this point. He's a good receiver. He is not a game-breaker on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. I still think he's very talented, but he's not a wide receiver one with a bullet like we thought he was a few years ago. Do you know how far removed we are from his last big season? Yeah, like 2016, I think. Yep, yep. He broke into the league, had over 1,300 yards as a rookie, scored 12 touchdowns that year, followed that up with his most productive season to date. He only played... 12 games that rookie season he played 15 games in his sophomore campaign and he was over he was over 1400 yards he had 1415 he had 13 touchdowns there another 1300 yard plus season with double digit touchdowns in 2016 and since that time not so much a grand total of 16 touchdowns in the four years that followed obviously there have been health issues along the way he's only played 39 games since that point in time but he is far from the reputation I, I think it's fair to say 
Oh, yeah. It, the reputation, and it lingered for a while because there was the injury issues, or there were the injury issues, I should say. And you look at his first year in Cleveland. You know, he broke the 1,000-yard barrier, barely. He had just over 1,000 yards. But he only had the four touchdowns. And it just, as you said, he doesn't feel like a game-breaker anymore. And he isn't a game-breaker anymore. I mean, realistically, we can say that at this point. And he, it's such a funny position because... It's not as if he's fallen off the cliff, you know, like he's had his last two relatively healthy seasons. He's broken a thousand yards as a receiver, which is not easy to do, but it just felt like the ceiling was so, so high for him and he hasn't been able to get back there and he hasn't demonstrated that true elite playmaker ability, the ability to just create a big play almost out of thin air that we associated with him in his first few seasons in the league. What was the talk at the end of New York? He wants out in New York, and if he gets yep. to a better situation with a better quarterback, the sky's the limit. It hasn't yep. happened. Like, it hasn't happened. His last year in New York was more productive than anything he's done so far in Cleveland. You're right, he crested 1,000 yards in that first season, but it took him more games to do it. It took him more yep. targets to do it, and he had fewer yards. He had fewer touchdowns with the Browns, and part of that is everything that we've associated with Cleveland until the last couple of years, but part of that's on him, too. And you remember the hype going into that 2019 season, which would have been his first in Cleveland. The hype, not just around huh. OBJ, but specifically that Cleveland team, right? Because because Baker Mayfield the year before had come in later in the season or about halfway through the season as a rookie and, you know, had put up some really, really impressive numbers, really turned things on. People thought, oh, man, this is guy is going to be the next star quarterback in the league. They go out and get Odell Beckham. Holy cow, what are they going to do together? Didn't work for the team that year and just really fizzled for Odell Beckham Jr. there as well. He just never lived up to that aspect of the hype. Yeah, we've had that off-season hype team, and it was Minnesota the year before that, and they fell flat on their faces, and then the year after when they were flying under the radar because of that collapse, Minnesota did something, and Cleveland kind of went the same way. A year yep. after all the hype, when they were terrible, they come back last year, they put together the playoff win, and get to within shouting distance of beating Kansas City in that AFC matchup as well. It was part of my fear with the Chargers this year. The Chargers were everybody's darling to a certain extent. Now, not to the same level as Cleveland because Kansas City sits in the same division. They own top spot until somebody goes and grabs that belt from them. But there's always that off-season team that gets so much pub, and yeah. the quarterback expect, expected to take the big jump. And so far, so good. It's only one game in for Justin Herbert and the Chargers, but they kind of felt like that team this offseason. They did a little bit. I don't think they were as clear-cut in that category as Cleveland was going into that one season, right? Like Cleveland, it was overwhelming. They were everybody's sleeper darling pick to go on a Super Bowl run. You know, can Baker Mayfield be the MVP? That was like one of the dominant storylines in that offseason. In a way, it wasn't quite for the Chargers, but you're right. They've got, I mean, when you have a quarterback who did what Justin Herbert did as a rookie, people are going to get really excited about it. I also want to bring up, if we're talking about the Chargers, you know, okay, we always talk about, okay, everyone's keyed in on fantasy and sometimes they don't pay attention to the other things going on on the field. Did you see the debut performance of their left tackle, Rashawn Slater, oh, man, and what he, he did good. in that game against Washington? And not just to get, like, Washington, okay, great defense. Specifically, he was matched up against Chase Young for much of that game, one of the premier pass rushers in the NFL. He erased him. He eliminated him. He didn't let him do anything. From a, a game one performance for your rookie left tackle, 
that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, he had the opposite week of Taylor Lewin in Tennessee. Yes, exactly. Exactly he did. He was at the complete other end of the spectrum. You're right. It's a good point. I think the other difference between the Chargers and their spec of, hey, everybody's darling, and what Cleveland was a couple of years ago, Cleveland talked about it. Not the fans. Yeah. I'm talking about the players. Like, it was yeah. OBJ. It was Baker Mayfield. It was Jarvis Landry. It was all of them saying, yeah, we don't care. Bring on the pressure. We'll be just fine. And they were an utter disaster under Freddie Kitchens. Yes. Oh, man. Freddie Kitchens. Poor Freddie Kitchens. Yeah, that was a tough, tough scene. You're right. When the, when the, own, when the actual team, the players, the personnel buy into it, that almost feels like a bad sign. Like, inevitably, something is going to go sideways when that happens. We're going to go sideways now, at least off the air, not as a station, but as a show. We will be back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Sportsnet Today is coming your way next. It will feature Bick Nazar and Katie Caldwell. They will keep you up to speed, and I will give you an update just before we end this segment. So if you want to turn down right now, if you're PVRing the game, I'll tell you before the end of this segment what the score is between the Jays and the Rays. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. Excellent job producing once again by Raja Shergill, Jamie my thanks to you as well. We're not arguing about food as often today. Here's your update. <laughs> the Toronto Blue Jays currently leading 3-0. They are at bat with nobody out in the bottom of the third inning. George Springer at the plate. Katie and Bick, they will keep you informed the rest of the way. Keep those texts coming. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Canucks rookie camp opens tomorrow. We're back tomorrow as well. Have yourselves a great Wednesday.